What does it take to build and grow a successful business? How realistic is the overnight success? My next guest, serial entrepreneur and angel investor, Bobby Martin takes a look at what it really takes to grow an outrageously successful business. She's a respected and trusted business advisor, an Ivy League business expert, best-selling author, and no-nonsense lawyer. She's Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Whether you're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur working for someone else, I want to give you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Because no one likes getting blindsided by what you don't know but somehow should or getting stuck paying for it later. Think of it as a mini MBA and school of hard knocks wrapped in one and on steroids. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Brought to you by Business M.O. LLC. Bobby Martin is the author of The Hockey Stick Principles, a new book about the four key stages to entrepreneurial success. But before we talk about the book, let me tell you a little bit more about Bobby Martin. He's a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and active board member with several innovative startups. While at the same time, he's a national speaker and an all-round hometown guy who focuses most of his investments in North Carolina, where he lives and works. He's currently the chairman and co-founder of Vertical IQ, a leading provider of sales research insight for banks. He also co-founded and served as president of First Research, a leader in sales intelligence, which he sold to Dun & Bradstreet Corporation for $26 million in 2007. So you see, he understands firsthand what it's like to start, build, and grow a successful business. And that's why it's such an honor and privilege to have him here with us today. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Bobby. Thank you, Hannah. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. You've got such a fascinating background. Tell me, what led you down the road to being an entrepreneur? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I think that Many people have many different types of stories that lead them to entrepreneurship, and there's been a lot of studies about that. But my particular situation was that I was in my 20s, and I was a banker uh, down in Wilmington, North Carolina. And as a banker, I called on businesses. And one thing I found is that, you know, when I started getting into business, I figured it would be uh, very natural and that I would fit right into a corporation. But I learned pretty quickly that, you know, I just didn't really fit in that well with a large organization. I wanted to do things a particular way. Uh, I, ha- I had an idea, and I wanted to implement that idea, but that is not realistic at a bank, especially a large bank. I worked at a large bank there. And so I started developing kind of this rebel personality, and that led me to wanting to start a business. And I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that some of them, Um, don't have that rebellious type personality, but they stumble upon something they want to do. Other people like myself are dead set on starting their own business, and that's what happened to me. So I toyed around with some ideas, but the the idea that really hit me was to provide provide industry profiles that are easy to read to sales professionals, such as bankers, so that they could prepare for calls. And I just, you know, a series of clues over a couple of years sort of led me to that idea of, first research. Well, that's interesting in that you saw this opportunity and then found a way to do something and not stay stuck in that corporate structure. So I really applaud that. Now, tell me about this new book, The Hockey Stick Principles. What inspired you to write that? 
Well, here, here's the thing about the hockey stick principle. It's, it's just like a, kind of like a new business in the sense that it has morphed and evolved over a long period of time. You know, I had the idea to write a book back in 2009 after I had sold first research to D&B. And what happened was I said, you know, my experience at first research was so incredibly different from what I hear about or read about in the books that I've got to document it. So I did. I sat down for, I don't know, six months and wrote the story of first research and the lessons that came from that. And I realized that this is just one situation. And so in 2011-ish, 10 or 11-ish, I started interviewing other successful founders, such as the founder of Red Hat named Bob Young. Red Hat Software is a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, here in Raleigh, North Carolina, I interviewed other interesting businesses such as uh, Rebel Systems, a modern company that provides point-of-sales systems, and many, many other founders, in fact, hundreds of them by the time I got finished. And I realized how incredibly different the startup stories were. And so that kind of led me to writing these stories, and I wrote dozens of stories. And those stories sort of have morphed and evolved into the book, The Hockey Stick Principles, which is, uh, you know, a book about four stages of growth. And one of the things I found is that, you know, if you look at all these different stories and how they overlap, they all had revenue uh, revenue curves that are shaped like a hockey stick because they spend oftentimes three to four years and sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but usually about that long, trying to figure out how their idea is actually going to work. And through those particular that time frame, you learn that these these founders do their most important work. When they're kind of down on their luck and things aren't going well, uh, normally it takes way longer than they, th- they thought it would to get started. And that's when takeoff occurs, once they're patient enough to figure that out. And that is one of the major things I found that overlapped. And, you know, it's kind of culminated into 92 principles throughout my book from interviewing all these hundreds of founders of what overlaps with them. Well, let's break this down a little bit. What are the four stages of growth? Sure. The four stages of growth, the first one is tinkering, which is the, the, the stage before someone quits their day job or commits very much money. I mean, they may put, you know, two or three thousand dollars or five thousand or less into the idea, but at this stage they're just tinkering with it. And I found it that on average uh, a founder tinkers with their idea for nine months. Some tinker with it for 10 years before they start and some two weeks. But nine months was the average through my study. The next phase is called the blade years. And the blade years is that three to four year time frame I was talking about when they've quit their day job, committed real funds into it, and uh, started the business. And that the big thing that comes from the blade years. It's like I said, the important work is done, but also it takes them way longer than they thought it would, and they oftentimes can't afford to pay themselves a personal salary, and that's where the rubber meets the road a lot of times. The third stage is the growth inflection point, and that's when the founders and the company begin to figure out what is actually working. They've they've actually discovered a market. They've learned to repeat success. They've tweaked their product or pivoted their product to the point of success. And then the last stage is called surging growth. And surging growth, of course, is when you know things are really taking off and the business is going through massive changes. So those are the four stages. Well, that's interesting because I think so many people 
especially in the startup mode, think that it's going to happen overnight. And that just doesn't seem to be the case. And when some of them hear that, oh, my God, it may be several years before I can pull a salary, I think that's really when they have the aha moment that about whether or not they're, they can be committed and have the financial wherewithal to be committed. Oh, you're, you're so right. I mean, even, even a modern company like Spotify, uh, the uh, music uh, sourcing, they they said we thought we could get the licenses in six months. We thought, uh, well, actually they said six weeks, I believe. It, it, they didn't think it would take any time at all to get licenses to play that those songs. It ended up taking them three years to get the licenses. So this is you see this over and over again. Now I'm curious about your research. Were there any surprises in the interviews and the studies that you came across as you were preparing and writing this book? Oh, yeah, there were lots of those, actually. Uh, well, one of them that hit me pretty hard is that, and it's one of the principles of my book, is there are no good ideas. Uh, I think basically what I'm saying is I think ideas are quite overrated because it's really the development of ideas. People think, wow, that was a really good idea. I should have thought of that. When really there are hundreds of ideas zipping through our heads all the time. But the most successful founders develop those ideas over long periods of time. I mean, a good example would be uh, Wayne Huizinga. Wayne Huizinga owned the Miami Dolphins for years, but he started waste management. Uh, He actually started three multi-billion-dollar companies, and one of them was waste management. When everybody told him that was a terrible idea to start a waste pickup company when there was huge competition at the time, and they became the most successful one ever. He started Blockbuster Video as well, which seemed like a really bad idea, according to research studies uh, that he conducted before. Everybody told him it wouldn't be a good idea, and then I believe the last one was CarMax. So, you know, I don't believe, I think if people are dead set on starting an idea, they don't have to be so caught up in whether or not it's going to be a good idea. I think a lot of ideas would be good with the right development. So that was one thing that came up. Um, The other thing that that came up through all these interviews is how incredibly interesting the stories are, the startup stories. All of them are worthy of an entire book and a good read, and how situational those stories are. In other words, a lot of what drives what happens with a business is entirely situational, and sometimes it's luck. People do create their own luck, you find, by trying really hard, but a lot of it is luck as well. And then the last one is I was surprised by how many of these successful startups are competing with multi-billion dollar competitors when they start. Just how many disruptors there are out there. It just blows me away. I mean, even Red Hat started you know, basically two guys and a dog to take Microsoft on right in their wheelhouse, which are operating systems. So, you know, and, and even a couple of ladies I interviewed who started something called uh, a company called Boogie Wipes, which are basically Kleenex that have saline solution in them, where they're taking on these multi-billion dollar companies right in their wheelhouse. And uh, they were just two stay-at-home moms who had the idea and kept pursuing it for a couple of years. And sure enough, they took off and became incredibly successful. So that surprised me as well. Well, like you said, having the idea is one thing. Being able to execute, that's really where it all comes together and where it makes it happen. Yeah, that, that's super. That, that's what became super clear to me. You know, the, 
all the people who became successful or outstanding at execution. And that's what my book is really about. I mean, it just goes through 92 things that these people do. It's like they just they just get it done. Now, a lot of them are very impatient. Uh, you've heard the the uh, cliche, patience is a virtue. Well, with startups, I'm learning that impatience is a virtue where they, uh, they the, in, in other words, it's kind of interesting because it takes three years, so that implies you have to be patient. That's true from that vantage point, but each individual action, each thing they do, they are incredibly impatient. So if they need to run a campaign or something, they just get it done. They don't, they don't waffle or kick the can down the road. They just go after it. And uh, that quickness uh, helps them eventually become successful. Well, I can see where there's a need for speed because they don't know where they're going to get traction, so they just need to try a whole bunch of different things. That's it. That trial and error is absolutely key. And you have to do that quickly, too. And, and one of the tough things about the trial and error is that when you try something, you want to try it quickly, but you can't quit on it too quickly because you're not sure if it's going to work or not. Sometimes you need months to know whether an idea is going to work or not. And so sometimes you're trying many things at the same time and kind of doing A-B testing where you're trying to see what exactly is going to work well. Because there is a fine line between failure and success. And, uh, you know, it could be tweaks. I think and that's another surprising thing I found is that many you, you hear a lot in the startup world about pivoting. And uh, pivoting means you you completely change your direction. You make a big change to your business. But what I've discovered is a little different from that. I'm finding a lot of the successful founders are actually good tweakers. So they make little tweaks, go, sometimes go a long way. And uh, that's been really interesting. Well, that is interesting because you're right. People talk about pivots. And, and I guess it's hard to know sometimes. They, you, know, you say the darkest hour is just before dawn. So if you just tweak it or just go just a little bit longer, you could be on the verge of success. And yet people sometimes walk away too soon. So I guess that's part of the challenge of figuring out whether to keep going or whether to throw in the towel and say, okay, enough is enough. In your experience, what are some of the biggest problems founders face when they're trying to get their business off the ground? Or if they're already in business, trying to get off a plateau so that they can get that kind of hockey stick growth that everybody's craving? Sure. I'll, I'll tell you some of the problems people face when they're trying to figure out how to get, how to take off. But first, I will tell you, just to go back to that tweaks with the, the importance of tweaking, with my own business, First Research, when I started it, we only, I only had $4,000 in sales in the first nine months. So I sold for nine months and had $4,000. When I tweaked my reports, because these, report, these were industry reports for pre-call preparation, make people smart before they met with people. When we started adding call preparation questions, just tweaking how I presented the information, that's when our business started really getting hot. People just love that. It was a pretty small or relatively small change that made a big difference. But it took me a long time to figure that out, and you're seeing that. But as far as the problems that founders face during those blade years when they're trying to figure out how to take their companies off, you know, I think basically there are three things. One is that they're trying to find a market, and sometimes that market is – is broad, which is pretty rare, but normally it's a niche. So they think they think they should be selling to one group of people or persona, and in actuality, 
there's another group or another niche out there would appreciate it even more. I mean, a good example for my book would be the founder of SageWorks, which is an incredibly successful financial software firm. And the founder created the, the product, which was basically artificial intelligence that helped interpret your financial statements. So it makes you smart. When you look at your own financial statements, it'll tell you all about those financial statements. When he started it, he thought for sure small business owners would be the buyers. And so he pushed, pushed, pushed for months and years to sell it to small business owners. But then he discovered that it turns out CPA firms were the perfect customer for him, but it took a long time to find that particular market. So that's one thing that takes a long time. The second one is developing a business model. You've got to find a business model. And what I mean is, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Business Model Generation. Uh, Yes. You're familiar with that? Yes. It's an outstanding read, and I recommend uh, the people listening to this show uh, pick that book up because they very wisely lay out nine elements to a business plan. They call it the canvas. It's customer segments, value proposition, channels to market, customer relationships, revenue streams, key resources, key activities, key partnerships, and key cost structures. It's the smartest founders through those blade years are constantly looking at all nine of those elements to see which ones they need to tweak or change so that they can become successful. And, you know, it's, it's no easy task because I just laid out a lot of different important things. And so the smart founders, when they're running into problems, it's usually within one of those nine things, and they have to figure out how to get that, get those things fixed. Um, the third thing is that they, they have problems ramping up their newly discovered business model. So they figure out something that's actually working, but then they realize they have now have a new problem. How do I ramp this up? And sometimes they don't have enough money because they've drained all their cash to ramp up. Sometimes they are trying the wrong methods in order to ramp up their newly found success. So now they have to start the process all over again. Maybe they have a second round of funding. You know, that's another thing I found is people go into business, they raise 50, say 50 or $100,000 to start, and then they realize, oh, this didn't go this took twice as long as I thought. It's going to take twice or three times as much money. So then they say, gosh, I need to raise another 100000 and they get distracted by that. So the, the really good founders are able to actually uh, sell, if you will, their newly found success so they can raise more money if need be. So those are a couple of things that kind of hit me. Well, as a serial entrepreneur, did you ever experience any of these challenges in your own business ventures in terms of getting it to take off? All the time. Uh, Indeed. I mean, I told you about some of the problems with first research when I started that. And then when I started Vertical IQ in 2011, I mean, this is pretty recently, we had all sorts of challenges we didn't think we'd run into along the lines of what I've just been explaining. And so we were constantly tweaking and changing our approach. We had to completely redo our product. It wasn't easy enough to use in the beginning. And so we realized that we had to go back and make those particular changes, which actually cost us about $30,000. So that was tough. And I'm also an angel investor with uh, about six different companies. And so 
those businesses, some of them are in their blade years, and some of those are those businesses are taking off. But we are the things that I've been talking about. We are constantly drilling through, and uh, you know it's hard. Uh, there's a there's a book, another book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Have you heard of that, Hannah? No, I haven't heard of that one. That sounds interesting. It's great. It's by Ben Horowitz, who's a famous venture capitalist and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. But he, his book is about just how incredibly hard it is because you have to kind of disagree with one another constantly on the right approach to some of these problems. And uh, the successful founders are willing to grind it out. And uh, that's what it is. Would you have any suggestions for listeners who are entrepreneurs or or trying to be, attempting to be entrepreneurs, they're in a startup mode, in terms of how to overcome these challenges? I mean, where do you start? If you see that it's not working the way you expect, what suggestions do you have for figuring out where the bottlenecks are? Yeah, sure. So I'll answer that a couple of ways. One is it's just encouragement for those folks is if you get into business and you've been working on it for a year and you're noticing things aren't going quite as planned, that it it could be that you just need to grind it out and you have to figure out, you know, some of these tweaks and changes that you need to make. And don't don't assume because things aren't going according to plan that it's because you have a bad idea or because you don't you can't be successful at this particular business. I mean, think about the uh, uh, example of Spotify that I just mentioned, just think if they quit after 18 months and said, you know what, it's pretty clear we're not going to get these licenses. And so that kind of leads me to the to the uh, to answering your question more directly. Is the first thing is to grind it out and to keep fighting when you believe in your idea. Now sometimes it is time to fold. You just know your instincts tell you it's clearly not working. Um, but to answer, your, to, to answer your question more directly, another example would be I encourage people who are struggling to really get out there. And so when you're struggling, the most important thing you can do is visit face-to-face with as many people as possible related to what you're doing. So if you look at that, that canvas I mentioned and those nine elements, you know, what's key is to kind of get face-to-face with each one of those people involved which, with each one of those nine things. And uh, because it's just different than, you know, trying to market and sell online that so many people try to do. I mean, if you go face-to-face with a customer or I should say 20 or 30 or 50 prospects, then you will learn precisely what changes you need to make to make your business successful. So that's one of the key things I think you need to do. Some people, one thing I'll tell you that you shouldn't do is start spending a lot of money and throwing money at the problem. And you see a lot of founders do that too, where they're frustrated, things aren't working. And so they think that the solution is to raise more money and sort of pour good money after bad ideas. So oftentimes it's just your approach. So you want to work really hard at that approach. Does that help? Yeah, I think it does. I I especially like that second idea about getting out and talking to people. Because the thing is, if they can see some merit in the concept, they can offer suggestions that you might not have thought of. Absolutely. That's it. So let's talk a little bit more about your book. Do you have any juicy startup stories in there? Yeah, you know, that that is a big part of what my book actually is, is, is the stories. And then, of course, advice comes from each one of these stories. And, and I was 
I just was completely entertained by the interviews. And, you know, I mentioned uh, Revel Systems, which is the, the first point-of-sale system uh, developed kind of for the iPad, if you will. And it was started by a, a really interesting entrepreneur named Lisa Falzone out of California who, you know, like me, was frustrated by working in corporate America. And she had a, she's a smart lady. She went to Stanford and was a swimmer there. But the interesting thing is how she developed the idea. What she did is when she decided she wanted to be an entrepreneur, she quit her job to become an entrepreneur. But she had no idea what she was going to do. She just started trying things. And she went through, she called them baby businesses. She went through like six or eight ideas. And one of those ideas, you know, one of the later ideas was that she was going to create an app that enables people to order to go for to go food um, from restaurants. So basically, you could do a to go or pick up items. And she was meeting with restaurants with a programmer. She partnered up with a programmer, and they were kind of going around pitching this idea. Now, each idea she'd only spend two, three, four weeks on before she would decide. She wasn't ready for that particular, didn't like that idea. When she was meeting with this tiny little restaurant uh, down in South Salida, she, um, he said, I don't really need that. That's not something I need. But what I really need is a better point-of-sale system. And he described exactly what he wanted. And so her programmer said, if I can program with that, would you buy it? He said, absolutely. So they went back and took a month or two, programmed it, and then, sold it to him, first customer. And then from then on, they ended up becoming a hundreds of millions of dollar company, going door to door and kind of kicking the tires on ideas. So that one really blew me away. The other one that was really interesting is the story of uh, Lending Tree, which is the business you know, you probably see on TV a lot. When banks compete, you win. Doug Lebba started that. He was just a, a young MBA student, and he went to apply for a mortgage and quite frankly, he didn't like how the fact that each bank made you fill out a separate application and sort of jerked him around the process. And uh, just because he hated the experience, he decided to start a, a system by which you could fill out one loan application, and then they, that loan application could be shopped around for you. And wow, what an incredible story. I mean, he spent three, four years raising money with people he didn't even know. He was the most tenacious guy in the world. He thought, just like many of these people, that it would just cost thirty, forty thousand dollars to build the application, and it cost a million dollars to build it. And uh, he raised the million dollars before he had the first customer. That's how good of a salesman he was. So it's just the, the details of these stories are amazing, and uh, they, they, they are quite interesting. Most definitely. And, you know, I can see from what you're describing here that entrepreneurship is definitely a mindset. It's a whole lot more than a title. And that if you really want to be in it to succeed, you need to be resilient. And you certainly demonstrated that in your business pursuits over the years. I'm wondering, what guided or influenced your decisions over the years? Is there an influencer you could share with us? Is there one? Oh, yeah, there, there are many. But the, probably the person who influenced me the most was my actually my high school history teacher, Don Goodwin, and uh, he, the, the cool thing about uh, Mr. Goodwin back in the day is that he was so passionate about history, and he was such a different, 
quirky kind of person. And I kind of learned through him and just how he loved U.S. history so much and therefore people around him loved history is that you can be an outsider. You know, I've been a bit of an outsider myself throughout my life. If you're passionate about something and you love what you're doing, then you can be an outsider and still fit in. And, you know, he was... He, that was a thing. Is, is I think sometimes we as individuals don't realize where, why we're frustrated until you kind of find your niche and find your groove. And that's kind of what he taught me in the 11th grade is that you can be an outsider and find your niche. And a lot of times that became through entrepreneurship for me because it enables somebody who's a bit of an individual and an outsider to find their own thing or whatever they want to do and make their own choices in life. And so his influence was by far the most impactful for me. That's really inspiring because who would have expected a history teacher, especially at that early age, to be able to share that kind of leadership message with you that he did? Uh, that's, that's really very, very cool. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners about entrepreneurship? Well, as you could tell from, from listening to me the last half hour, I have, I have lots of things. I mean, one thing I'd love to pass along real quickly are some of the hockey stick principles from my book and they're like I say there are 92 of them and, and and a few of them that hit me that I haven't mentioned already is uh, you know taking love money is nothing to be ashamed of if you're open and, and optimistic about it and I don't know if you know what love money is but that's basically when you're starting a business or starting a company and you have very little money to start it and you know you need at least say twenty or thirty thousand dollars to get started as an example Love money is money you get from people. They don't give it to you because they think your business idea is great or because they think it's they're going to make a bunch of money with it. They give it to you because they love you. And I, my point is, is that so many of these businesses I interviewed, they raise love money to just get that first little start. And I just think you know there's some good best practices like you shouldn't tell them to give you money that they that they uh, can't afford to lose, of course. But I think that's one thing that has uh, been influential with all these stories. Um, the other thing is avoid 50-50 partnerships. You know, but there's nothing wrong with partners, and I encourage co-founding, but I, uh, I'm not a big fan of going 50-50 because that often leads to uh, things getting shut down and not being able to make clear decisions. So governance is really important, so I encourage you to think about that. Uh, and then there are many others, such as uh, don't show up for the investor negotiation gunfight with a knife. Hire experts to join you. So when you start scaling up and making a lot of money and raising venture capital, you need experts to be around you. So there are many, many others, and um, so I hope that helps. I think they're terrific and a good reason for people to go find your book, The Hockey Stick Principles, The Four Key Stages to Entrepreneurial Success. I know we're going to have a link to it, the Amazon link, on our show notes so that people can learn more about you as well as your book. But besides that, where else can they find it, Bobby? Well, uh, hockeystickprinciples.com is my website, and there's a number of links there to purchase it. And hockeystickprinciples.com has a number of free resources on there. In fact, Chapter 2 is free there if they'd like to check that out. And then there's a, a lot of interviews of successful founders, hockey stick growth charts, and a number of other things. So they can check that out there. 
Well, definitely, definitely, because those resources, I'm sure, could be very helpful in providing more depth and insight into your book and what you're trying to do in terms of promoting entrepreneurship and and people's expectations in terms of what they expect and not to give up. So I thank you so much for your time, sharing your experiences and your insights on entrepreneurship. Thanks so much, Bobby. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it, Hannah. Terrific. Giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Brought to you by Business M-O-L-L-C. Thank you for joining me today on Business Confidential Now. You can get more information about today's guest and the resources we mentioned during today's show in the episode notes that are located on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. Sometimes we even include some bonuses and goodies, so be sure to check it out. That website again is businessconfidentialradio.com. And also don't forget to subscribe to the show. That is the easiest way to keep up with the show and our guests, those thought leaders, experts, and authors who are transforming businesses behind closed doors around the world. Let them help you, too. Subscribe today for easy access to the business information you need to succeed. You know, the reason we call the show Business Confidential now is because you don't have time to wait. So just do it. Subscribe now and leave a review. We want to hear from you. We want you to be part of our growing Business Confidential Now family. Tell your friends and colleagues so they can subscribe too. Because the more subscribers we have, the more great guests we can bring you. And the more business intelligence you'll have available to ignite and fuel your continued business success. Have an idea or a topic, a guest that you'd like to hear on Business Confidential Now? Contact me at the website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media, too. We'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more of the business intelligence and inside scoop you need to succeed. Till then.